Ed sat at his post on the dock, unable to move, paralyzed by some unseen force. The darkness of the night was oppressive as the lapping waves slapped against the wooden beams that held the dock in place. Out upon the water floated two hulking behemoths of steel and iron, their massive shapes only visible within the dark skies and dark waters, thanks to the movements of their crews in the night. Thousands of sailors bustled about the deck in the dim glow of the orange light. Ed knew something horrid was about to happen. He tried to avert his eyes, but he could not look away. The great metal beasts groaned as they turned in the water. From deep beneath the waves, Ed heard, no, Ed felt the shattering and tremulous clink of metal on metal. The waves erupted in flame, the metal hulls of the metal beasts blasting into shards and fragments of their former selves. Oil spread across the water, the flames spreading with it, and all Ed could hear were the dying screams of the men on board. Ed woke from his nightmare, drenched in sweat. He struggled to tap down his fear, his visceral terror. It had only been a dream. But something was terribly wrong. Still shaking, Ed got dressed and went to work at the docks that morning. The morning of December 7th, 1941. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as Parcast's other podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. On December 7, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. The horrific events were declared by President Franklin Roosevelt as a date that will live in infamy and ushered America into World War II. On that quiet Sunday morning, eight battleships were moored at Ford Island, along with some smaller support vessels. Just before 8 a.m., a wave of 183 Japanese planes flew over Pearl Harbor, dropping armor-piercing bombs and torpedoes. 
A second wave of 78 Japanese planes soon followed. The U.S. fleet was ambushed and decimated. In addition to Pearl Harbor, the Japanese also targeted other military bases on Oahu, including nearby Hickam Airfield and Schofield Barracks on the other side of the island, severely incapacitating the U.S. military's ability to fight back. In fact, only eight American pilots were able to launch planes and mount an air response during the attacks. In just under two hours, the Japanese majorly crippled the U.S.'s Hawaiian military installation, especially the naval force. Nearly 85% of American planes on Oahu were destroyed or damaged. 21 naval vessels were damaged, destroyed, or sunken. By the time the attacks ended, over 2,300 American servicemen and civilians had perished. Another 1,200 people were wounded. In response, on December 8th, the U.S. declared war on Japan. Meanwhile, at Pearl Harbor, destruction and chaos reigned. A huge operation was underway, locating survivors. Ronald shoved through the crowd of sailors, clogging the maze of small rooms that made up the third deck of the battleship USS West Virginia. Ron heard someone barking orders to get topside, but he wanted to check the pumps. When Ron hurried in to pump room A109, Clifford was already there inspecting the pipes. Suddenly, the ship jolted. Ron and Clifford exchanged worried looks and turned to run for the door. In the hallway, they collided with another sailor. He told them there was a fire blocking the ladder to the second deck. The three ran back into the pump room. The lights flickered, then went out, making the room pitch black. Luckily, Ron knew where a flashlight was and carefully felt his way over to it. Suddenly, the ship lurched hard, listing portside. Ron almost fell, but caught himself on the edge of some wooden crates. The flashlight went flying. He crawled across the floor, feeling for it. Ron found the flashlight and switched it on. He crawled over to Clifford and the other sailor. Their faces mirrored the terror he felt. The ship was sinking, and there was nothing they could do about it. They furiously banged on a pipe, hoping rescuers would hear. The ship lurched again and began tilting back the other way. Lewis, the other sailor, cheered, but Clifford was somber. He now knew they had sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Once their arms grew tired, they started taking turns banging on the pipe with a wrench every 15 minutes or so. By flashlight, they took inventory. There were a few tools, 
some emergency canned rations, an eight-day clock, an old blanket or two, a wall calendar, and pencil. Luckily, the room had a fresh water pump. The dark enhanced the sounds of the room in odd ways. Even all the way across the room, Ron could hear Clifford exhale tiny puffs of air when he pronounced certain words. It changed their sense of taste, too. Each bite of the beef stew rations tasted delicious as the tang of the salt helped calm their nerves. Ron did push-ups. He and Lewis were antsy, eager to get out. The emergency beef stew rations were getting old fast. They were confident they would be saved. And once they were free, they were going to eat to their heart's content, get drunk at the bar, play pool, and sing Christmas carols. Clifford was different. He sat quiet and motionless in the corner. Ron watched Lewis mark a third X on the calendar when they turned on the flashlight to portion food. Three days. He could hardly believe it. They had been stuck here three whole days. They tried to cheer Clifford up, but his eyes were ceaselessly dour. Clifford looked away and kept banging the wrench against the wall. They ate beef stew for the ninth straight meal. Ron forced himself to swallow the gelatinous slime. He was never again going to eat it once he got out. The endless single taste and Clifford's endless sadness started to get on his nerves. They were going to be rescued. They had to be. Day five. The room stank of feces and urine. Ron was very tired, but he couldn't sleep. It was hard to sleep with the frequent banging on the pipe. His ears rang. He wasn't sure, but his breath felt shorter than before. And now, as the pipe rang, he thought he could hear the faint whispering answer of the ship to their pounding. It ached and groaned and lurched against the current, almost as if the ship itself wanted them to stop. But they would be saved. Day 8. The sudden circle of light from the flashlight hurt Ron's eyes when Lewis turned it on to check the time. The clock had frozen. Lewis wound the clock... Then Ron turned his head away as Lewis marked the calendar. Ron's eyes were filled with tears. He tried to tell himself they'd been caused by the burning light of the flashlight. It was Clifford's turn to bang the wrench, but he refused. They asked what was bugging him, but he could only say, the ship, over and over again. The ship. The ship. The ship. Ron knew what he meant. He'd heard the groans that had turned to screams, piercing their ears with each clang of the wrench. He heard the ringing cries of pain echoing from the walls, the shouts that kept him up. Ceaselessly awake, 
as the walls seemed to press ever inwards, cold metal on their bare flesh, muffled by the water that filled the halls. He knew the ship wanted them to stop, to give up, to die. He just didn't care. They were going to be saved. He would have stopped eating the beef stew long ago if he didn't think they would be saved. Inhale. Exhale. Clifford's breathing seemed to get louder with every breath. Ron hated his attitude, almost as much as he hated the beef stew. Ron wanted to smash his stupid, smelly face in. He ran his tongue around his mouth. His gums felt sore, his tongue huge. Someone shifted in the darkness. Clifford's long nails clicked on the door as he fumbled with the hatch locks. He muttered, like he'd muttered for all the days before. Ron got to his feet. Clifford didn't respond to anything they said. He just kept messing with the door. Lewis clicked on the flashlight. Ron shoved Clifford away. A punch was thrown. A hit connected. The two traded blows in the claustrophobic dark. And as flesh hit flesh, a low purr began to stir within the room. The ship was pleased. They'd finally begun to hit each other. They'd finally stopped hitting it. By the end of the fight, Clifford lay in a heap, his eyes glittering feverishly, blood and tears spilling over onto his sunken cheeks, his mouth swollen and bleeding. He curled into the fetal position. He began to laugh, high-pitched, ugly giggles. He chuckled about the ship, killing them slowly. He'd rather end it, and end it now. Ron sat, cross-legged beside Clifford, and put a comforting hand on his shoulder. They all could hear the ship. They were going to make it suffer just as much as they had. Lewis picked up the wrench, clicked off the flashlight, and started banging on the pipe. Coming up, we'll have more from the haunting aftermath of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And now, back to the story. Battleship USS West Virginia took nine torpedo hits during the Pearl Harbor attack. She caught fire and burned for 30 hours. Due to her construction and the heroic, self-sacrificing actions of some crew members, she sunk with an even keel, allowing a large number of sailors to evacuate. She eventually came to rest on the muddy bottom of Pearl Harbor, 40 feet below the ocean's surface. The initial hours of the rescue effort were chaotic. But somewhere along the way, rescuers realized that they were hearing rhythmic banging from the forward hull of the West Virginia, meaning that there were survivors alive and entombed in the sunken ship. 
Higher-ups quickly determined that a rescue attempt was out of the question. The diving technology of the day was limited, and the rescue effort was already stretched thin. These men had been killed long before they realized it. Immediately after the attack, sentries were posted to guard the shipwrecks in the harbor. At night, guards could clearly hear the three surviving sailors on the sunken West Virginia, banging to alert rescuers to their position. The noises stopped just before Christmas, over two weeks after the attack. In the spring of 1942, the USS West Virginia was raised and towed into a dry dock. Salvage crews began the grim work of recovering the drowned from the ship. To their horror, they found pump room A109 completely dry. Evidence of eaten rations and a calendar marked off until December 23rd, 16 days after the attacks on Pearl Harbor. They also found three bodies huddled together dead from hypoxia or oxygen starvation. 18-year-old Ronald Endicott, 20-year-old Clifford Olds, and 21-year-old Louis Buddy Costin. Old sea dogs say that in the wee hours of December nights at Pearl Harbor, you just might hear the three trapped sailors banging away, hoping for a rescue that will never arrive. During the attack at Hickam Air Force Base, Japanese planes strafed Hickam Barracks, a multi-story dormitory and mess hall. This attack killed 189 people and wounded over 300 more. The huge canteen located in the center of the complex was directly hit by a 500-pound bomb, killing 35 soldiers at breakfast. Many soldiers were also killed while they slept in their bunks. Beginning in 1957, some of the barracks were converted to administration. Over time, the entire complex was added onto and renovated into offices. It's currently in use as the headquarters for the Pacific Air Forces, or PACAF for short. Externally, many battle scars and bullet hits from the Japanese attack have been preserved as a show of respect. Internally, it's been transformed into a maze of cubicles and offices. The PACAF HQ building has developed a dark reputation as terrifying events take place within its walls. Mike yanked the plug on the boombox. He had grown tired of hearing the same big band CD played throughout the halls, day in and day out. His superior said the music was meant to appease the restless spirits who still resided in the building 50 years after the attack. But for him, the music ate away at his soul as he tried to finish his overtime accounting work for the day. Mike walked down the hall whistling. Finally, he could listen to his own music, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, good modern rock. Mike glanced up. 
the overhead fluorescent office lights were flickering. Their snaps and buzzes filled the office with unsettling sound. The back of his neck prickled as he got the distinctive sense that someone was watching him. He turned around, but all he saw were empty cubicles. Mike cracked his knuckles, a nervous habit he had never grown out of. Perhaps he could finish his work at home, or even do it tomorrow. Yes, he could do it tomorrow. He packed up his things and put them in his satchel, then speed-walked to the vending machine in the break room. He always ended the day by purchasing a Kit Kat bar. He pushed the buttons, glancing around, as the candy fell to the dispenser. He reached in and grabbed the candy bar. But he jumped as the back of his hand touched something wet and cold. He pulled out the candy and looked at his hand. His skin was covered in scarlet, the dripping, pooling wetness of blood. He screamed and dropped to the ground, his hand falling on the Kit Kat bar. He heard a loud snap. The Kit Kat bar felt hard and brittle in his palms. Trembling, he pinched the plastic and peeled it back. Instead of chocolate and wafers, the wrapper was filled with long, thin, white bones, broken in his palm. Mike jumped, then rubbed his eyes. The chocolate was chocolate again, but something else soon pulled his gaze. The little green numbers on the microwave began to count up, rising faster and faster with each moment. Mike shuddered as the digital numbers hit one, nine, four, one. The microwave dinged and shot open. That's it. He was getting out of here. Mike raced toward the exit, panting in horror with each step he took. He stared at the elevator numbers while he waited. He could sense a presence behind him, but he wasn't going to look. Finally, the elevator arrived. Mike jumped in and frantically pressed the ground-level button. Mike breathed a sigh of relief. The elevator jerked to a halt, the numbers shifting between the floors, and the doors sprang open. Mike watched as deep red blood poured into the elevator doors. He cowered and then cried in terror, staring at bodies stacked on top of bodies, some piles rising taller than himself. The scent of copper filled the air. Blood flooded the ground, and scorching red sunlight burned through the multitude of bullet holes, peppering every surface and every corpse in the room. Then the gunfire came. The blood splattered upwards in a morbid ballet of gruesome crimson. The bodies shook and fell apart as they were blasted to bits. Mike shut his eyes tight and cowered in the corner of the elevator. The hellscape swirled around him until finally the door closed. His heart racing, his skin like ice. He heard a disembodied laugh 
reverberating throughout the walls of the elevator. He braced himself for what would happen next as he prayed to God and hummed Nirvana, trying to keep his mind off the possibilities. When it arrived at the ground, Mike burst from the elevator and sprinted outside. The guard in the security booth just outside the building automatically saluted Mike, then noticed Mike's wide, agitated eyes, his pale, sweat-beaded skin, and creased uniform. The guard asked if he'd seen Charlie. Mike nodded, tongue-tied. The guard nodded back, then returned to his paperwork. Odd paranormal incidents on Hickam Air Force Base are attributed to a victim of the Japanese attack turned poltergeist, nicknamed Charlie. Charlie likes to steal coins, switch off lights, ring alarms, slam doors and file cabinets, and mess with clocks. Charlie's favorite place to cause chaos is the old dormitory turned PACAF HQ. In the days after the attack, several buildings at Hickam acted as makeshift field hospitals. The barracks ended up serving as a temporary morgue where the attack victims were piled high. Allegedly, trained military guard dogs have disobeyed orders, shied away, and whimpered when forced to enter PACAF HQ. Additionally, many soldiers have had brushes with Charlie. While most walk away unharmed, the guards prefer not to risk it and spend their shifts in a tiny, unair-conditioned security booth just outside PACAF HQ, instead of sitting at the front desk in the air-conditioned lobby inside the building. But at Pearl Harbor, even the outdoors can be home to the spirits born from that tragic night. Coming up, We'll meet more of these very specters of Pearl Harbor. And now, back to the story. Airplane Hangar 37 stands on Ford Island at the center of Pearl Harbor and was the primary post for seaplanes at the time of the attack. When their planes were destroyed, Americans fought back from the hangar area setting up and firing machine guns at the invading Japanese. After the attack, some survivors temporarily lived in Hangar 37. Today, the vast 42,000-square-foot hangar houses the Pacific Aviation Museum. It features a rotating collection of vintage, mainly World War II aircraft, preserved Pearl Harbor airplane wreckage, and a movie theater for history films. Some of the attack damage has been preserved on the hangar building, the original bullet holes remaining as permanent scars from the vicious attack. The museum is extremely popular with tourists, both the living and the dead. Malo, the head security guard, ushered a large group of tourists out the exit. A few employees also followed. Lisa, the tour guide, kept a smile pinned to her face and waved goodbye. Soon she could go home and exchange her dress code skirt and pantyhose for comfy sweats. She stretched while Malo set the alarm and turned off the lights. 
the museum instantly grew lonely. The dim security lights casting twisted shadows on the wall. The walkie-talkie at her hip crackled to life as Malo radioed to the rest of the staff that the building was finally closed. He winked at Lisa and stepped out the employee side door for a smoke break. Lisa walked down the aisle of planes toward her office. She loved the museum, the history of the old-fashioned aircraft, the wonder in children's eyes. Lisa came to a halt at the World War II bomber exhibit. The mannequin pilot was no longer sitting in the P-51 Mustang cockpit. Instead, he was doing a headstand. His boots propped against the side of the plane to hold him up. This was not the first time the mannequin had moved, but everyone on staff denied that they were moving it, and the security cameras never seemed to catch the perpetrator. A shiver skittered down her spine. Lisa tried her walkie-talkie, but it wouldn't work. She took a deep breath in, then carefully lowered the mannequin to the floor. She'd have someone fix it in the morning. She looked around. Sometimes sound bounced so oddly in the hangar. If she didn't know better, she'd swear someone was in the rafters. She stopped, point blank, peering down the aisle in disbelief. An old man in a worn naval uniform sat in the darkness on a bench, quietly staring up at a World War II Republic P-47 Thunderbolt. She hesitated for a second. The intensity in the man's eyes was reminiscent of her childhood's deepest horrors, piercing and unwavering. Then she stormed toward the man, telling him they were no longer open. He had to leave now. The man kept his eyes on the plane. In a somber voice, he informed Lisa that he used to be its pilot. She fumbled for her walkie-talkie, but it still didn't work. The man kept talking, a calm but unsettling power to his voice. He spoke about the friends he'd lost in that first attack, his survivor's guilt, and the death wish that had driven him to become a fighter pilot. His voice was compelling, almost hypnotic. Lisa found herself walking the last few feet and joining him on the bench, almost out of her control. The closer she had gotten to him, the more difficult this man was to see. She had a vague impression of a gaunt, wrinkled face, but it was almost as if the shadows continuously shifted to keep the man in darkness. He continued to talk, and Lisa found that her surroundings were shifting. The museum started coming to life, planes moving through the air, walls fading into the background as her eyes were pulled back in time, reliving the attack. Lisa ducked as she saw soldiers, wait, mannequins, with their pale, featureless faces zigzagging, trying to outrun the thunderous bullets being spat from machine guns on low-flying Japanese bombers. The choking black smoke billowed up from the burning ships in the harbor. 
She cried as she witnessed the flailing mannequin splayed across the ground because the hospital, overlaid with the tents in the museum, was overflowing with the wounded. She felt the anguish of a spouse or mother as they found their missing loved one on the lists of the dead. She saw the faces that went with the names on the plaques she had pointed out a million times before. She lived through the nighttime security lockdowns, the rumors and paranoia of more attacks whispered throughout the island. The fear of being trapped in this dark museum with buzzing propellers and the screams of dying mannequins. Lisa startled. Her walkie-talkie was going off. Lisa looked over at the bench. The old man had disappeared. Lisa opened the door for Malo. He and the other security guards had found themselves mysteriously locked out of the building. She made security turn on all the lights, but the man had vanished. She didn't believe it when Malo told her it was after 10 p.m. It had felt like 15 minutes, but she had spent more than three hours talking to the veteran on the bench. No one else had seen the man. Lisa continued to insist that he was real, but when they reviewed the security footage, she was alone on the bench, nodding and talking to someone only she could see. In addition to still being an active naval base, Pearl Harbor contains several memorials and museums celebrating the U.S. military. The most famous of these is the USS Arizona Memorial. Constructed in 1962, the USS Arizona Memorial consists of a stunning white building built perpendicular over the vessel wreck in Pearl Harbor. Visitors take a ferry across the water to access the edifice. The memorial is meant to resemble a bridge and is composed of three rooms. The entryway is a vestibule for visitors to prepare for reflection. The assembly hall has seven floor-to-ceiling windows, referring to December 7th, the date of the attack. There's also a viewing window cut in the floor, where visitors can see down to the ship. In total, throughout the hall, there are 21 windows, an eternal 21-gun salute. From its very construction, the Arizona was considered unlucky because she was christened with water and not wine. In 1941, the Arizona had twice collided with other ships in the U.S. fleet. In fact, the Arizona was only still stationed in Pearl Harbor because she collided with the USS Oklahoma on October 22, 1941, and her schedule was altered to accommodate the collision repairs. The day before the attack on December 6th, the Arizona prepared for a trip by taking on a full load of fuel, approximately 1.5 million gallons of oil. During the Pearl Harbor attack, a bomb penetrated the battleship's armored deck and hit the munition storage, causing the ship to detonate. What was left of the burning ship sank in 10 minutes, with most of its sailors still on board. 
1,102 servicemen died on the Arizona, the highest death toll out of any ship, building, or hangar attacked that day. The shrine room in the memorial houses a marble wall which lists the names of those who perished on the ship. Many of the victims are still on board the sunken wreck, their final resting place. After the attack, it was estimated that nearly half of the 1.5 million gallon fuel load was still aboard the wreck. Beneath the memorial, the wreck of the Arizona continues to leak oil over 75 years later, up to nine quarts a day. A rusty giant with an open wound on the soul of America, forever bleeding. Over the years, legends have surfaced about the memorial. One well-known story is that it's haunted by a sad, regretful ghost. Allegedly, an Arizona officer on lookout duty on the morning of the attack became distracted and briefly left his post. While he was gone, the Japanese attacked. Riddled with guilt, his ghost is forever tied to the ship. Tourists have snapped some interesting pictures of the underwater wreck, seeming to show a face peering through a hole in the ship. And still, a few have had bittersweet yet comforting supernatural experiences at the memorial, seeing the smiling faces of their lost loved ones form in the oil as it spills into the ocean. Surviving crew members of the USS Arizona can choose to have their remains placed on the battleship and be buried at sea when they die, spending eternity with their crewmates. It's been over 75 years since the devastating Japanese attack on the U.S. military bases on Oahu. Today, the island is a popular tourist destination and operating military base. Yet, the tumultuous events of December 7, 1941, continue to reverberate in supernatural ways. Pearl Harbor continues to be defined by the dead as much as it is by the living. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Candace Rogers. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>